Welcome to Sighs and Whispers, an interview podcast series about cultural history. I am Laura McClaus Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. So much of what I am seeking to learn about in these interviews is how cultural creatives have molded their lives and careers by following their passions, what choices they've made, where it's led them, how they created the lives of their dreams. The paths my interviewees have taken are quite diverse, but they are always driven by a depth of curiosity and enthusiasm that is outside of the normal constraints of society and business. In June, I spoke with Terry Tariba, who definitely exemplifies this ardor for life. Terry is a fashion designer, actress, writer, and all-around creative. I first became aware of Terry around 15 years ago when I found a dress labeled Terry Tariba for Malibu Media in a vintage shop. Copious research and Googling led me to unearth the many intriguing aspects of Terry's life and work. As you'll hear in the interview, Terry was raised in Ohio before moving to Los Angeles at 13. She became interested in fashion when European boutique labels started appearing in fashionable shops in Los Angeles, alongside the innovative work of LA-based Jordi Gunrich in the wake of the British invasion. Wanting more than what was available in those stores, she started to design and quickly found herself apprenticing at Apasia, the largest LA-based multi-brand fashion company who owned Young Edwardian, Young Innocent, among others. Still a teenager, Tareba moved from apprentice to designer and by the early 1970s was already making a name for herself. Over the next 20 years, Tariba designed for all of the major Los Angeles fashion companies and their numerous brands, producing clothes that were sold in hundreds of stores across the nation. Among the many subjects we discuss in this interview is the setup of these companies and the fashion industry at the time, and how this structure changed and disintegrated by the time she left fashion in the early 2000s. This interview definitely helped me clear up some of the questions I've had about the industry then. Starting with junior brands, as her clientele aged, Terry's work shifted to more contemporary lines before having her own label of expensive clothing in the late 80s and early 90s. After her hiatus, at the beginning of the millennium, she briefly stepped back into the industry to help revitalize a then-struggling BB. While she loved fashion, it was never the main focus of her life. She more so saw it as her career, and just one interest among many. Alongside her high-powered fashion design career, Terry maintained a very busy social life among the upper echelons of the film and art worlds. Good friends with the likes of Andy Warhol, she also spent a lot of time in Paris and Rome in the 1970s, with the creme de la creme of the European movie world. After many years of friendship, she acted in Andy Warhol's Bad in 1977. Instilled with a deeply curious mind and creative brain, Terry brought an elevated aesthetic sense to all aspects of her life, from her career to her relationships and her exquisitely designed homes. As we discuss, her LA home was featured in a 1983 issue of Architectural Digest. You can see these images at sizewhispers.com. In her 40s, Terry fell in love with Jerry Lieber, the legendary songwriter who, with his long-term partner Mike Stoller, wrote and produced many of the most enduring classics of rock and roll, including Hound Dog, Is That All There Is, and Stand By Me. A true love story, the pair were together for 16 years until his death in 2011. While together, she began researching and writing a book on the Los Angeles gangster Mickey Cohen, a 10-year process that culminated in the publication of Mickey Cohen, The Life and Crimes of LA's Notorious Mobster in 2012. When we spoke in June, Terry was preparing for a move to Santa Fe, a decision brought on by the changes in her longtime home Los Angeles over the pandemic. She speaks very openly and honestly about all aspects of her career in the fashion industry, her friendships and loves, and the inspirations that have lit up her life. I hope you find her as intriguing and inspiring as I did. Enjoy. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today. I'm very happy to be doing it. 
Yeah, so I always usually start off with asking, sort of talk about your childhood and your upbringing to get a sort of sense of where you came from to then end up where you are. I'm a baby boomer, and I was born in Warren, Ohio, which is not far from Cleveland. And at the time, it's now uh, part of the Great American Rust Belt, but at the time, it was part of America's great booming industrial cities. And I had wonderful parents and a brother who was eight years older than I. My mother was a very, very ladylike and quiet, but very strong, I found out years later. And my father was very handsome man with a very big, outrageous personality. I was doted on in ways with them because I spent a lot of time with them. My mother taught me to read and write and actually read music, playing the piano, before I was in kindergarten. So she had the older child who was busy, you know, in school, and devoted all this time with me. And so at kindergarten, I already knew how to read and write, and we really didn't have actual children's books at home. Um, I had a teddy bear somebody gave me. I didn't have any dolls. I had, you know, all this adult material to read, from Golf Digest to Newsweek, and things like Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys and the Laura Ingalls Wilder things were available for child reading, but, you know, I could delve into any adult material I wanted also. And my mother had the Contraband Confidential magazine there because under her very, very ladylike persona, there must have been some edge of adventurism. So they were sort of, that was sort of hidden away, but I found it. I had a father who would devote time collecting stamps or coins or walk the golf course with me, and a very nice brother, and we took many road trips in the 50s in the fabulous car of the era, the Cadillac, I think I had a wonderful childhood. My grandparents were immigrants from Eastern Europe, all from different places with many changing borders. And I knew three of them up until the time they, those three passed away around the time I was around five years old, all three of them. The, the uh, other one I never knew. He was gone by the time I arrived. Were you artistic as a child? Was I artistic? Yes. And I had many, many diverse interests. I was a child ornithologist at age five, and my parents got me every kind of book from, you know, digest of ornithology, every kind of book in between to glossy, you know, paper editions of photographs of birds, made at that time, you know, I remember the paper being so thick and beautiful on these photography books. Every interest I pursued was greatly 
supported by my parents, particularly my mother, who was certainly around me more often than my father, although he, you know, spent a good deal of time with me. Sometimes that got in the way because my brother was an excellent pianist, classical pianist, and he could also play boogie-woogie. And I really wasn't that great, I don't think, at all. And I had to take lessons for like six or seven years. And my mother, for some reason, had it in her mind that I was, you know, equally as talented in that area as my brother, which I wasn't. So, you know, things like that happen, too. Sometimes, you know, things you weren't interested in also became prominent. But it was mainly things I was interested in. And I I was interested in everything, sort of like a little adult, because that was the world that I was brought up in. I remember I got my tonsils out at age seven, and I said, oh, people have dolls, you know, and, and I never had a doll. I have every kind of art material, every kind of book, every kind of anything, you know, every kind of lesson, but I, you know, don't have a doll. And so my parents got me a Shirley Temple doll, which I actually still have, and it's in perfect condition because, of course, I had no interest in playing with dolls, and I never touched the doll. Did you have good friends? Were you hanging out with other children your age, or were you more like a loner? No, I had very good friends, and ironically, I lost touch with them when I was about 12 or 13 years old, and we accidentally ran into each other in 2005. And these kids were, you know, full of uh, adventure and sarcasm and rebelliousness, like I suppose I was too. And in 2005, one was living in Santa Monica, California, very near me, and the other was living in Manhattan. And we both, all three of us, had parallel lives. And until one of them passed away in 2015, we, all three of us, remained great friends from 2005 on, and the uh, remaining friend I'm still, you know, very close to. That's wonderful. Yeah, I had lots of friends, but these, you know, were very, very close friends. And losing touch and then having parallel lives in a way where everything fit in with, you know, you would never expect that to happen. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, the the careers were different, but, you know, the interests were the same, the sensibilities were the same, the politics were the same. Everything was as, you know, like we were little time capsules, you know, little experiments of what would happen in all those decades that had passed. And, you know, it was as if nothing happened. All our interests were aligned and everything was still as dynamic as it had been as children. I love that. At what point did you move to California? Because you moved as a child, right? Yeah, I moved. Um, well, I, I I also lived in Florida for a short time as a okay. child. I lived here twice before I moved because I went to school in Florida during a time I moved here and then my parents uh, were here and I was in school in Florida. So, you know, around 13 years old. 
but, you know, actually before that, I was here at five years old for the first time in Los Angeles. You know, from what your designs, I always just sort of, it's, you seem like a California person. You seem like a Los Angeles person. Did it feel like that when you moved there? No, I didn't like it at first. It was very different when I first moved, you know, here. It was, you know, about very cliques and car clubs and surfers. And then the English invasion happened and the Sunset Strip happened. And I fell in love with all of that and the clothing of that era, you know, that I grew up in as a baby boomer teenager and being able to shop at stores where they had Parisian designers like Sonia Raquel or somebody. They were first stores importing Europeans and English designers, and uh, we had Rudy Gernreich in that store. And I really, really was attracted to Rudy Gernreich's things, which were not readily available. He had a very, very small business, and at that time he had gotten a license with Harman Nitz, so it was available uh, in a small way, and it was available where I, this, this store called Country Club Fashions, which was also Theodore's later, which is where I saw these things. It was run by a man named... Uh, Herb Fink, and he was a very, very much, uh, you know, an innovator and thinker beyond, you know, everybody else. You know, this was like mm-hmm. the first boutiques. I actually interviewed him very briefly a while, a while ago now. He already had Alzheimer's at that point, but he was able to, or dementia. But he, yeah, but he was able to answer remember enough to talk to me for a little bit but I from what everything I know his stores were really really you know important um, places in LA in terms of fashion well they were really really innovative and they the next one that came was much later which was Maxfield's with Tommy Purse but Mm -hmm. that was many many years later and then another innovative store, but not featuring Europeans or just uh, very, very good fashion, more for the general public, youth-orientated, was Judy's. The others, you know, Herbie Fink had a diff- it was a whole different world view, you know, where you got the European and Rudy Gernreich and no- nothing else like it. And this was at the very beginning of fashion changing. And I started going to after-school shows like Shindig, which was filmed here, and we'd be driven by a parent. You know, a few of us would go, two or three girls would go after school, and uh, a parent would drive us, and we'd go see Shindig and the other, you know, national teenage shows that featured all the, you know, British Invasion acts and all the other great American acts uh, of of the, you know, period, and that was great fun. And I always, that's where my interest 
in fashion came because I wanted to have the clothes that I really couldn't buy. You know, I, I was a teenager and I couldn't afford really much at Herbie Fink's Country Club. You know, I thought like, oh, I wanted, you know, maybe be a fashion designer, which really wasn't something that anybody thought about at that time. Uh, after, you know, I'm thinking, like, I have ideas for this, and this appeals to me more than any other concept of a career. And that's how it sort of started. And I really am not technically trained properly because where I went to school was more of a focus on art. And after I became a designer, you really learn that it's not like in the movies where people are doing, you know, involved fashion illustrations on an easel with a model walking by that really a thumbnail sketches what you do. So, you know, over the years, I've lost any, you know, our ability to do classic fashion illustrations. Mm -hmm. I never really used them in my career. But, you know, I luckily was in a position where the firms that I started with was like being at the, you know, taken into MGM Studios in the 30s and dropped in there and given a contract, you know, where I didn't really have to do these things that I wasn't good at and didn't really like, like making patterns or sewing. That is not what I was about, you know. But Mm -hmm. they had all those professionals, and, of course, being there and, you know, watching these professionals was, like, life-altering. And then when, you know, working with them, because they were so amazingly skilled that, you know, I I could never, you know, never stand up to them. But they were very open to me. I had, if something was a sixteenth of an inch off, I would draw on a rough muslin that they, you know, put up. Or instead of a straight line, I'd you know, put a little bend in, in in the line or, you know, a curve in a collar or do these idiosyncratic touches that, you know, just came to me instinctively. And uh, they, you know, did them for me. And I think a lot of my success was doing these things that were a little bit off and a little bit different. And, you know, instead of the straight line, you know, there'd be like a bend in the line. And that kind of thing, I'm a very instinctive person. My whole life has been built on instinct. And I never planned things. If I if I decided I was going to do something, I did it. But it was never like I dreamed of this years and years and years. Maybe it was in the back of my head for years and years and years something. But when I went to do it, it was out of instinct. This is the time, and I'm doing it. And that's how my career came about. And I was a teenager, and and it came about because I wanted to have clothes like they had in Swinging London. (laughs) And soon I was, you know, wearing the Terry de Havilland clothes, wedges, and, Mm -hmm. you know, clothes that my design room would make for me, you know, like at home and special ones and 
traveling, you know, the world and wearing thrift store clothes along with it all. It was a lot of fun, but it really wasn't something I dreamed and planned. And I really, you know, did not have the expertise of 95% of the designers out there. But I had something else. I was able to deliver compelling designs. I knew fabrics. I, you know, you pick my color palette. I designed my own prints. I did all these things that other people may have been afraid to do, but, you know, I went on my instincts, and it was all very successful. How did you get from the girl who's going and dancing at Shindig and wants the clothes that she sees, you know, at her pink to within a couple of years working in Young Edwardian, for Young Edwardian? How did you get there? I, yeah, I wasn't dancing at Shindig. I was in the audience. Well, it just sort of happened. You know, I never really, I had only like three after-school jobs, and they were for about two weeks each, and one volunteer as a candy striper in a hospital, one was wrapping packages at Christmas, and my mother walked by, and I was so terrible at it. Uh, my mother walked by, and I was twirling around some display, and she thought, oh, my, you know, Terry's never going to be able to hold a job. <laughs> and the other was, like, filing a medical historian, like, for about a month after everybody left the premises. I would come in and, you know, uh, do that. So these were my three, my three jobs other than in fashion. And I went to Woodbury College where it was a focus really on art, not so much on, on you know, the technical things that designers normally have, like sewing and pattern making. And I obviously, you know, came into the industry. I don't know how it happened, but I got a job as an apprentice in the where I sketched in the back room with another girl. Now, she had won a Mademoiselle magazine contest to get that apprenticeship. I don't even remember how I got there, but there we were. And, you know, we were brought out into the main of the, you know, it was like MGM. It was like they were making the most fun clothes that sold to the best stores all over the country. They had, you know, licenses. They had many divisions. And there was a wonderful woman who was uh, the head designer named Cheko Kamisoto. And she recognized something in me and pulled me into actually beginning to design. And, you know, working with the pattern makers, you know, seeing the sample makers, and she, you know, was in charge of all the divisions. She was, you know, uh, older than obviously I was. But, and, you know, she saw something in me that could do something, and they let me do it. The owner, Jack Litt, was very, very, you know, forward thinking because they were so successful. They had to, you know, produce a lot of strong product and a lot of it to, you know, 
fulfill the needs of all the 5,000 accounts they had. And it was a real juggernaut. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, it was very glamorous there, you know, the offices, the space. The, it was just a very, very glamorous environment. And I must say that between Jack Litt, the owner, and uh, Chieko Komisato, you know, I all of my career began there and with them. And that was Arpeggio, right? Yeah. Arpeggio was the, the the parent company with the many different branches. Yeah. The branch I liked most, but I never worked on, was called Young Victorian, and it was the sportswear, because everything at that time was divided into dress buyers, sportswear buyers, I guess buyers for tops. I don't know. You know, they all had their own category. I liked things I saw in certain Hollywood movies. Some of them I thought were very overdone in the old Hollywood movies, but some of them I liked. I particularly liked Ori Kelly and Adrian and things like Garbo and Dietrich War. Uh, That was influential. I loved Biba, and I loved going in the 70s to the huge Art Deco department store which, you know, was filled with their own product that unfortunately lasted only a short time. And I remember boarding the plane with everything you could possibly buy, including a huge lampshade. I think I think I liked Biba most. Like Mary Quantumy was very staid and, you know, Rudy Gernreich, they both were small companies and small, you know, businesses Mary Quant had the miniskirt, but Rudy Gernreich had the topless bathing suit. So which which one was going to appeal to me? I have to tell you, you know, it was uh, Rudy Gernreich. Mm -hmm. And I later had a lovely dinner with him in the 70s, and he was a wonderful man. In 1970, I started traveling also heavily. Sort of, you know, to keep keep me happy. I think, you know, they would send me on trips that, you know, to Europe that weren't so much work-oriented, but I think because, you know, I performed well and money had been made, you know, I was able to go on these trips to, I think, blow off a little steam. I think they think that somebody so young needed it. So I remember... I remember meeting Ossie Clark at his studio in London and Catherine Damon, a model who took me around. And I lived uh, with Carolyn Guinness and her husband, Barney Platts Mills, in their house for a little while after meeting them in the south of France. A mandolier and Robert Stigwood. I was invited to many parties because I was friends with many of uh, the young men who were his executives. And so I had a life in London that I wouldn't call it a 60s swinging London life, but, you know, whatever was happening in London during the time I was there in the beginning, in the early 70s, was, like, to me, kind of a disappointment because the swinging London life, you know, it wasn't, but, you know, it was still exciting. I, you know, I wasn't there during the 60s, so I don't know. 
the 60s here were incredible because the Sunset Strip from, it's 1.7 miles long. The Sunset Strip starts at Crescent Heights Boulevard and ends at the Beverly Hills border. And that 1.7 miles long of was jam-packed every night with teenage kids walking and in cars every night for five years. So from 1965, and it ended in 1970, it was already over, the Sunset Strip was a very, very exciting place to be, and I was there as often as I could be. And my career had already begun at the end of that time, you know. When I was looking through, like, WWDs, I kept seeing your name, but associated with lots of different brands. It seemed like there was quite a... Yeah, well, you know, my name... They, yeah, I mean, well, also, sometimes the brands, WWD was very nice because they always put my name, even if I was working for a huge corporation like Young Edwardian, Mm -hmm. they put my name on. My uh, my two big fights were, you know, once I became successful on a kind of, you know, like level where you knew a lot of money was being generated from your work. I wanted my name on the label territory before, which I did get in certain at certain form at certain firms, and I you know always wanted more money, even though I had no idea how much money I was being paid. you know it was a significant amount of money, but I always wanted more and at that and sometimes I was able to get a salary plus an override of gross sales, which was, you know, a very, very uh, lucrative situation. Women's Wear was always very supportive of me, but oftentimes the firms were all the same firm. I might be doing, you know, three different divisions and they'd have different names, you know, and it could be at the same firm. Some of those I was able to sort of figure out, like, you know, JT dresses is part of Joe, yeah, uh, Jody of California. Jody, yeah, yeah. I mean, and then just tops, and then mm-hmm. you know, I did the Jody, which was a massively successful dress line. That was another big firm. That was like the second biggest firm, based out of L.A. And say those three were all divisions of the same firm. You know, because of the buying situation, where buyers couldn't just buy just clothes. You know, you couldn't just buy clothes. If you wanted a pair of pants, you had to go to a pants buyer. If you wanted dresses, it had to be a dress buyer. I remember Jack Litz saying, you know, that uh, he wanted something where he could design just clothes and they didn't have to be in separate categories. And Mm -hmm. I went to him around 1980. I said, you know, Jack, let's do something where we design, you know, I design whatever I want and he said he you know he said that he was going to pass and that we would be you know because he was going to leave the industry you know and retire from the industry but you know it's a concept now that certainly works and it certainly would have worked with all the boutiques that were around at the time too Mm -hmm. but this was an era of department stores every city had incredible department stores and they were the buying situation was they they couldn't buy just clothes they had to buy in specific categories so that's why they there were many divisions in the big big firms 
you know, they needed the specific buyer had to buy the specific product, like a dress yeah. buyer or a pants buyer, you know, or you know, all that. You know, I don't know what it's like now because clothing. I'm, I, I'm, I don't think I could have a career now in the fashion business at this point. Well, the department stores are all really struggling, so it's a, it's very, very well, different. Well, you know, I mean, well, it was so different then. They were very, very vibrant and had exciting products. And, you know, the boutiques had exciting products too, but the department stores were very, very cutting edge in those days all around the country, too, because that's what people wanted, and they demanded it, and they got it. So it was a different era because people really dressed, and they dressed in wild ways. I also liked the designer Claire McCardle, Mm-hmm. And she, you know, designed where I would design. You know, this is not, this is like higher level product for everybody, but not mm-hmm. like, you know, for older women, you know, looking for couture clothing. Claire McCardle was sort of like in the same grouping of uh, what I was doing. That was like basically and started in the 40s. I liked a lot of things that were coming out, and I didn't like a lot of things that were coming out. But, you know, there was a great vast range, and there was a great vast range in price points. Then at Malibu Media, we went over a little bit more expensive, and it wasn't much, and that was called contemporary. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it was essentially using materials that were more elevated, in price or not, but it became another category that was above junior. And it wasn't for your mother, but it was like somewhere in between. As the young teenagers were growing up a little, it became the new category, contemporary. You know, it's all blended. And then the 80s came and everything sort of, you know, everybody had grown up by then and so it all sort of became contemporary. Did you ever have any interest in doing like high fashion, very expensive clothes? Well, I did it for myself. You know, I wore that. But I mean, you know, this is th- these were things like your mother would wear. I, I also love Madame Alix yeah, Gray and I loved uh, Valentina who, mm-hmm. you know, had a very tiny business in New York during, I don't know, the 40s, 50s. Those were people I really liked in high fashion. The high fashion, you can see me wearing all kinds of things if you go to my website. And those were things that, you know, were designed by me for me. But they probably wouldn't make it, you know, into the stores because, Say, for example, my hooded dresses, and I was one of the first to do hooded dresses, they really didn't sell very well. You know, I was doing, you know, hooded maxi dresses in 1974, but they weren't the best sellers, you know. You put them on, and they're there, and you did them, but that wouldn't make a career, (laughs) you know. It would, you know, make a very tiny career, maybe, but fashion, you know, was my job. I really didn't think of high fashion as part of what I was interested in because, say, Rudy Gernreich, in the 50s, I saw a retrospective show like around 1981 
where he was doing special couture things, I think one of a kind for wealthy women. And it was a very, you know, very, very tiny business. And they were incredibly modern and not what you think of as couture clothing. So, you know, it predated, you know, what we think of as Rudy Gernreich now. But I was designing for people who are my own age group. You know, I like to use silk. I like to use rayon. I like to use cotton. And if I use a polyester, it's going to be a very, very good one that's like a rayon matte jersey. So I used, you know, the best fabrics of the, the type that I could. That was a wonderful thing, that I was able to, you know, these clothes were able to be made in, you know, more premium fabrics than, say, the really mass-market clothes. I never designed a mass-market line at all, ever, where you would really have to skimp and use fabrics that were not the best. I luckily, you know, was able to avoid that. I think that's why your clothes have lasted. You can still find them and, you know, I still wear them. Not only the the design of them, but also the fabrics have lasted well, you know, have held up. Yeah, I wish, you know, I mean, I have all kinds of press and photographs taken, but I never, I'm never one to really look back, you know. Mm -hmm. I know what they are in my mind and I know what each photograph looks like. And sometimes they surprise me because one of my favorite photographers, Moshe Braka of the period, who shot a lot of shots of me, came out with a book a few years ago. And I was wearing some design that I had done, you know, that they had done especially for me. I didn't even remember this photograph. So sometimes, you know, know, they slip your mind, too. I didn't even know it existed, and maybe I had never seen it. Yeah, I was fortunate that... It was really, really much easier being in a place that's like MGM than like struggling along, you know, working at your own business because being a fashion designer is a business and it's a serious business. A lot of it depends not only on your design and hard work, a lot of it depends on superb salespeople you know, tremendous connections with the stores that the salespeople have, advertising, and Arpeggia, you know, had very, very clever ad campaigns. It was like being at MGM in the 30s. So they could afford to pay you very, very well. You'd go home at night and, you know, you'd be off on a trip to New York for 10 days and look for fabrics for your next collection. It was like kind of the best job a girl could have. And I didn't know it, but, you know, it was like an an early feminist situation. I remember, you know, how difficult it was getting my first credit card, even though, you know, my earnings were certainly more than sufficient to be able to have one. But just because I was a woman, it was hard to get. And American Mm -hmm. Express gave me my first credit card. But I was very close friends with Cher Height, the feminist of the Height Report, Height Reports. And uh, I remember being in New York restaurants together with her where the male waiters would shun us. I mean, you know, I remember, you know, so many things that being sort of in an unusual situation where 
you were able to function on the level of the male executive and were paid on that kind of level, and sometimes even more, because I was just talking to a friend of mine who was head of a creative director of a, two big New York advertising agencies, and the same year I was making, in 1977, I w- was making more than twice the amount of money he was. I just learned this last week, wow. which was kind of shocking. I was very protected from any kind of sexual harassment because, you know, they didn't want people bothering me and, you know, disturbing a person who was a money maker for the firms. So, mm-hmm. you know, everybody was sort of terrified of me also, <laughs> you know, because they had to. I didn't know it, but I later learned that. So that was a very, very wonderful, you know, thing because I think all females were harassed always in workplaces. And until the Me Too movement came along, nobody paid any attention to it. I had a very odd marriage proposal. I've never said this publicly. I was working at my desk and someone came along and they said, Mr. Litt wants to see you in his office right now. And so I went to his office, which was like this 30-foot office where you walked along, and then, you know, he was sitting at the back of the 30-foot-long office at his, you know, big desk. And so he said he was getting a divorce, and he pointed to where the photograph of his ex-wife had been. And then he said, I want to marry you, and I'll make you the biggest designer in the world. (laughs) I said, well, you know, I don't think so. And he said, well, oh, that's okay. Okay, so just, you know, go back to work. (laughs) (laughs) And I had offers, particularly when I was living in New York for two years, Uh, I was in New York about every six weeks for 30 years, so, you know, I was essentially bi-coastal, living in hotels, but I actually lived there for two years and worked there. Because I was from California, every time daylight savings changed, I'd get depressed, and Mm -hmm. I really had a, a difficult time living in New York, although I loved being there, but actually living there... And a very, very prominent and honest and reputable man wanted to do a Terry Tariba label. And I could not do it because I had to move back to California because I really, really did not feel well living, you know, constantly in New York. And Mm -hmm. so he chose someone else and, and that label, you know, still exists very successfully today. But I don't have any regrets about it. I lived there in 1975 and 76, and I came back in early 77, and that's when I came back to to do Malibu Media. From 1970 through 2001, I essentially, you know, was there every four to six weeks for 12 days, you know, out of the month. They were very, very good with me because I was able to have my very, very active social life and still, you know, do my job. You know, but remember, there were big crews of people around me that made this possible. Mm-hmm. You know, and but I had to, you know, I had to work very hard, but I had an incredible support staff. 
So that's why I think that the organization of these big Los Angeles-based companies was tremendous. They were in every store of importance in the country, and the support staff and they just were juggernauts at, you know, during these periods. In the 80s already, there, there was no company except maybe burgeoning jeans companies or something. The, the era of that was already waning by the 80s and the 90s. The 60s and 70s were, you know, the pinnacle of that. And also of, you know, the really fun dressing when when you're designing a collection for say young Edwardian or Malibu Media, how many around how many pieces would you be would you design? Um, we do groups of fabrics or interlocking, you know, looks. So mm-hmm. I sent you, you know, that little set with a little dress with red and black, and then a maxi dress with red and black, and mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, a hooded maxi dress in stripe. And there'd probably be four to five pieces in a group that interrelated. I would say five seasons out of the year, you do spring, summer, trans season, fall, and holiday. Five seasons a year. Holiday and trans season were smaller seasons. I'd say, you know, anywhere from 70 to 100 pieces. Wow. And, you know, how many groups, you know, I don't know. You'd have to divide that up. You know, a group could be anywhere from three to five mm-hmm. pieces that worked within a group. Yeah, I, was, I mean, I always sort of wondered about because it's one of those things you can't ever get a sort of a grasp on just by looking at, you know, old magazines and or the trade publications. When Yeah, well, when, you know, say Young Edwardian, they had 5,000 accounts. And, you know, can you imagine all the boutiques and then, you know, the department stores, which had the department stores until they fell apart in the 80s, the late 80s, you know, were everywhere, uh, any population hub, uh, you know, had at least one or multiple, depending if you're New York City or Chicago or Los Angeles, department stores. And they had different grades. Say Los Angeles uh, May Company was like a more budget-oriented store where Robinson's was uh, higher end and then Saks was sort of similar to Robinson. And then, you know, smaller ones like iMagnons was a very elite mm-hmm. department store. And then they opened up Joseph Magnons where I had a very, very big presence, which was their younger, you know, it was their younger department store. It was, you know, see, everything changed, you know, with, uh, with like, say, the Beatles, everything changed at that time, you know, mm-hmm. and a place like iMagnons wasn't going to depend on ladies who lunch, you know. Uh, they opened up a whole new store, you know, multiple stores, not just one store, but a whole new brand of, you know, stores. How much yeah. interaction did you have in the selling, in the, you know, with all of those boutiques? Um, and- I had, like, none. <laughs> <laughs> I My uh, interaction was with the people who 
sold me textiles, uh, mm-hmm. textiles designers, button designers. I, I usually did my own buttons, my own belt buckles. You know, I it was all it was all the people that supplied me. I had no interaction at all with actual sales or of of the final product or the clientele. They just mm-hmm. went to the stores and people bought them or didn't buy them. And the you know, as I said, having a great sales team was essential to having a a big business. Did they ever your bosses, did they give you directives? They gave me some directives, and then they'd have big sales meetings where all the salespeople would come in. And, like, you know, I remember one time almost crying because I took everything so personally because I was so young. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, they wanted, like, a button changed, you know, completely on a whole group. And, you know, I remember taking it very, very personally. I took things very, very personally, you know, as if, you know, they were my children. But, you know, we'd decide on what fabrics we'd make a group out of. And then if everybody liked them, which they usually did, there wasn't much there wasn't much uh, contribution. But we all decided, like, you know, I said, there are 70 to 100 items five times a year for each of those seasons. And the stores demanded that kind of product. When I worked at BB, I made a comeback just to sort of do it for fun. When I worked at BB, which they owned their own stores, they needed product every month. And that was really, really a lot. I I did that in 2000, 2003, and 2004, but I didn't really need to be doing it, and I, you know, left when they started getting... They had been successful, and then were not successful, and they were a public company. So I kind of brought them back, and the stock went very high, and they brought in all these people like merchandisers, which became like a big thing starting, I think, when the department stores died. Uh, these people came from retail, and you know, the, the fashion wasn't very innovative. And I think the merchandisers, who became very powerful in fashion companies sort of killed all the life of fashion. So they hired lots of, you know, merchandisers and, well, they had merchandisers, a lot of people to work in the design room that were unnecessary. And so I just left, you know, and they sort of like didn't recover after that, although they had some very good designers. When I started out doing BB, it was like very, very loose and, not many people involved in what the product was going to be. We just wanted to take it in a different direction and, you know, make it very good and, you know, bring it back. And, you know, it worked. And then many people were hired and many people became involved. It wasn't that appealing for me to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, if there was a trend coming, we would be on it. Or if they asked, of the stores asked for something. You did disco dresses, you did prom dresses, but you sort of did them, you know, I did them in my own way. Mm-hmm. These were never clothes that I would personally be wearing, it, you know, occasionally. I was lucky enough to mainly, you know, have not complete control, but very little interference. You know, when you look back and the sales staff of, you know, 
20 people, they want button changed for a group. That's not, that's not that big of a deal. Some of the owners worked more closely with me than others mm-hmm. and in the successful rapport and never really intruding, just giving ideas and input and in, in a very positive way. It just depended on the person. But I think the merchandisers, which became very powerful and pervasive, were really detrimental to American fashion. And that that didn't exist until, I'd say, the 80s. It was something that was non-existent. They all came from retail and, yeah. you know, and it became very bland and the the freedom and the creativity was stifled and you know you could have a a hugely successful business that would go downhill and mm-hmm. i've worked in businesses when that have gone bankrupt after i've left them i don't know it was it was because i left them or whatever happened happened but that mm-hmm. did happen but the role of the merchandiser was not something I liked. For many, many, many years, they became very powerful. I wonder how much power they have now. I mean, I feel like everything has changed so much. I don't know anyone. Yeah, it's all changed so much. It's all changed so much. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if they exist. I mean, I have no idea what the fashion business is like today. The big brands, you know, doing real fashion, I don't think they really exist anymore. Everything's sort of, you know, generic, and that is, I think, an appropriate for the times. I mean, it's lifestyle, casual, leisure is the dominant theme of today's life. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it because it was uh, not that long ago, but I texted you. It was me at some art opening in a big hat. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how I'd go out dressed in this, like, cool white crepe suit that had uh, like a beautiful art deco prints uh, collar and was like cut to the waist and it tied and I had the pocket flaps were also in the print. That's just the way you dress. It was a whole different time. It was a different era. I was a young version of what people dressed like. I wasn't the beginning. I came in, it had already was, you know, huge starting in England. And I remember going to Rome and seeing, you know, like the furs were dyed green and gold and, you know, red. Things, all the colors. And it was a very, very exciting time to be doing things. You mentioned in one of your emails that you spent a lot of time in Paris and Rome in the 70s. How did that come about? I started having these trips to Europe that my companies would send me on. And I, you know, was involved in the film world. And I liked the foreign films like The Conformist, or the Visconti films. It was the time of international cinema making the Fellini. You know, all the great films were made essentially in Europe mm-hmm. and Japan too. But, you know, American filmmaking didn't start to perk up until, you know, the 70s, mid-70s maybe, you know. But, you know, it was the time of the great European filmmakers, and I 
met many of them. Met Fellini. I met you know Scorsese. You know I interviewed Spielberg and Scorsese. Although that didn't come out. That's a long story why it didn't come out. But it was like you know the Spielberg interview, which is now on the internet, but it was 33 pages long. You know, there's like uh, a very, 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 very you know like few pages of it now. Maybe a page and a half of a 33 page interview. You know Polanski. Truffaut, Alain Delon, the you know great international superstar who also is a great style icon. Buck Henry, you know some of these people were my best friends. Some of these people I met in passing. Some were lovers. My life was surrounded by these geniuses of film, and essentially, I fell in love with falling in love with geniuses although they were like big crushes at that time. I wasn't mature enough to really think of anything but, you know, continuing my career and, you know, doing my work. And a a giant crush was enough for me. My father and brother died when I was a teenager during all the Sunset Strip, you know, uh, art school years. And that was a very, very traumatic time, as mm-hmm. and I'm sure affected me until this day. And then in the mid-70s, my mother was living in California, and I was living in New York, and she was desi- diagnosed with a form of cancer that her prognosis was very, very bad, and they didn't expect her to live for more than maybe a month, six months or nine months. I was living in New York. She had a very successful surgery here, and I got her special treatment that was only given to terminal patients, and she lived to be nearly 95 without it recurring again. So I had, you know, a lot of personal problems going on at the same time as my career and my always emphasize social life (laughs) you know so I was incredibly busy Andy Warhol and Paul Morrissey were key figures in my social life and uh, so you know I was taken around everywhere Andy was a great matchmaker he loved making matches you know I just had this extraordinarily active social life Sounds amazing. And, you know, what appealed to me was genius. <laughs> so I didn't care what anybody looked like. Uh, you know, what appealed was genius. That was another, you know, charmed thing about my life, that, you know, I had such access through Andy and Paul Morrissey. It was amazing. How did you first become friends with Andy and Paul? Well, they they were out here, um, and they were screen. We met at a screening, and I was there with Jim and Pam Morrison. It was a very small screening, and the next day they invited me to go to MGM with them, and Candy Darling, and Fred Hughes, and that was the beginning. But I did meet you know them through my acquaintance with Jim Morrison and Pam Morrison. At the time, I was at Young Edwardian. I 
did a few pieces for her, always on open themis. Her extravagant boutique that was never open, and there's tons of pictures of things I did, one of a kinds there. She had a whole setup there with a pattern maker, sample maker, you know, for, and she had spent a fortune of gyms on this boutique that was never opened. And she had collected, you know, clothes from all over the world, incredible vintage clothes, and a few things that I did as one-offs. And I was never paid for. But we used to wear them out at night, everything. (laughs) It it didn't matter. It was never opened. But it was sort of like became a personal place to pick up what you were going to wear that next night. Did she just not have it open because she just couldn't be bothered or...? Yeah, I think so. I saw some pictures online. I, you look amazing. Wow. Your outfit is amazing. Thank you. Well, those those were all designed for her. And she did an amazing job of pulling together the vintage clothes, the clothes from Moroccan and Afghanistani, international clothes, and the store itself, which was a small boutique on La Cienega, was amazingly designed. And she picked me. Well, I don't know how she found me. I already, you know, had a real job, but it was fun to do. It was the most exclusive, we must say, <laughs> because it was never opened. I wonder whatever happened to those clothes. You know, I didn't design much. I designed maybe not much more than what you see in all those photos. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, she had the other things, you know, filling in. And it was a very, very short period of time that I did those designs because always incredibly expensive because she had a staff there, meaning pattern makers, sample makers, a person like him made good money, you know. So she had a design room, a small design room, and, you know, somebody who could, you know, do these one-of-a-kinds when you aren't open and you're running that kind of overhead. Certainly not feasible, I I didn't really follow it. You know, I was too busy with my own life. How did you end up acting in one of Andy's films in that? Well, I, you know, had been close to them for many years, and it just happened. I had known them already, you know, for six years on an intimate level, and Mm -hmm. I got cast. I didn't like acting at all. It was very hard. I found it very, very hard and demanding, and 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 at the end, you have, like, no control over what happens. Where, you know, in my design career, I did have a lot of control. It was really demanding, really demanding. It was shot in New York, and I, you know, took the whatever time off from my design career and did it, and it was grueling. It's not easy work. You know, when you see people like Alain Delon and Clint Eastwood, you know, they make like two pictures a year for 40 years, you know, producing, directing, you know, doing all kinds of things on it. It's it's these, you know, people, uh, it's such a demanding, demanding how they do it. I never know, you know. It's amazing to me. And it's also boring, you know. You're waiting for all the setups, the shots. There was more freedom on that film, too, than any other, even though that was Andy's union, you know, Hollywood-style picture. There was a a little bit more freedom than you would have on a normal picture because it was an Andy Warhol production. As I said, I have many, many interests. Beside my social, you know, life, 
going out a lot. I read a lot, and I was a, and am a cinephile. I'm going back, and in the last few years, they because they've become available, particularly on Criterion.com. I've been watching the movies of my youth that I love so much, and and watching them and seeing the nuance that I missed in films like The Conformist, films like uh, The Damned, Visconti's mm-hmm. The Damned, Bertolucci's The Conformist. I watched the whole catalog of what was available of Alain Delon's films, which he worked with, you know, the greatest directors in the world, so it was quite impressive to see his oeuvre, as they say. So I have always been interested in, you know, these internal introspective things. And I wrote a book, which couldn't be more internal. How did you transition out of fashion and into writing? Well, I I only wrote one book, and I really don't like to write. (laughs) And I didn't transition into it because, you know, I don't think of it as a career. I wrote one book, the book, people like it, so it... I wanted to. I, if I, I thought I'd have a book in me if I ever find a topic that can interest me for the amount of time that it takes to write a book. And mm-hmm. I found the topic, and I did the book. And it took, you know, I still do research on it when it comes around to me uh, because I still find it fascinating. But it's a book that is about LA's famous gangster who was the most outrageous character, you can't even make him up. And um, it, But it also, because he is from L.A. and exemplified L.A. in so many ways, it takes you through the entire history of the L.A. underworld, which had never been explored before. So there was a tremendous amount of fascinating research that covered nearly you know, half a century it kept my interest going and, you know, instinctively wrote. I never took a writing class. On a final draft, I worked with a, a very top editor, and he was also a top publisher, you know, who pushed me further. It was a really, really fascinating experience. But I could only do it because I could afford to do it because it cost me money really to do it, you know, mm-hmm. all the time and effort that went into the book. So it it was, you know, definitely something I cannot call a career because for one, I don't think there there would be anything that could keep me motivated for that long. And for two, you know, writing today is not a particularly lucrative profession. It is for certain people, you know, if you're a major politician and coming out with, you know, your book that, you know, tells the story of what happened. But, you know, it wasn't anything I aspired to do, but I wanted to do it and I'm happy I did it and I wrote a book that I like, which was my goal, that I'd want to read. How long did it take you to do all the research and everything for it? And write it? Well, I still I still do research <laughs> on it because it's a very broad and mysterious topic. So, you know, I'm still interested in it and hearing research about it. If something comes up, I, you know, take note. 
So I worked on it, you know, 10 years on and off. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I was 47, I became involved uh, with a man who was, he's passed away 10 years ago, a genius. And we were together for 16 years and till his death. And, you know, that became uh, the driving force of my life. He didn't need to go into the office every day and neither did I. And essentially during that 16 years, we spent all of our time together. You know, it was the greatest years of my life, I think. Were you still designing or was it, or was this already when you were writing? Well, when it was, I, um, I, was, I, I came back and did BB during that period, mm-hmm. uh, but that was, you know, like only for a year and a half. And we had been together, you know, for many years when I did that. And I wrote the book during that time when we were together. But he was a, a great artist and a great mind and the funniest person in the world. And, you know, he had his own projects that he'd work on, but, you know, we really did not spend eight hours a day, you know, five days a week working. Well, it sounds like you were, you know, incredibly lucky to have built up your careers, both of your careers, to, and, you know, your finances to be in the position where you could have all of those wonderful years really together. Yeah, it was an incredible, incredible thing. You know, I never thought I'd find someone that I'd love so much and someone who I felt understood me and, you know, was supportive of my ideas and I would have so much fun with, but, you know, that I would ever find true love, but it happened. Beautiful. I'm sorry that he's not still. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I've seen some images of your home back in the 80s, and it's really yeah. They, I think they're like in the AD. I think it was May 1983. Mm-hmm. I, I think. And I, I feel like your house was very original and unique. These are all intuitively, and you know, the man I lived with also had that was one of his hobbies, mm-hmm. too. And we lived in a place, an incredible place that he did on the beach in Venice, California. It, it, it's something, you know, another artistic aspect that comes out that I'm interested in. I'm interested in collecting. He was too. I'm interested in, you know, living in a beautiful environment that is sort of of my own making, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's just another aspect of a person, you know, like I said, I can't really do much more than do a thumbnail sketch of a garment now, but, you know, I've been researching what I want to put into the light fixtures and what I want to put into my new home and what pieces I'd remove and, you know, what pieces I'm taking and, you know, it's just sort of an ongoing creative process. I think it's it's just sort of how you're wired. I think, you know, being creative isn't necessarily... I think you could be a creative lawyer. 
I think you could be a creative person in finance. I think you could be a creative doctor. I think all these different professions that may be in science or math, I think that the people that do the best are very creative thinkers. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a painter or a designer or anything. I I, I don't believe in the strict confines of creativity. I believe in creative thinking. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in, you know, you you can't be a doctor and think creatively in your profession. I totally agree. It's something I've had to try and explain to other people before because I think it's so, you know, we're so taught that this is creativity is just this. But when actually any kind of problem solving is a form of creativity. Yeah, absolutely. And why are you moving to Santa Fe? No. Well, I think my post-COVID life, Los Angeles has changed a lot, and I think that I want a new challenge of experiencing something other than Los Angeles post-COVID, mm-hmm. and I don't necessarily think the changes in Los Angeles have been for the positive, and I love Los Angeles, but I, you know, want a new challenge, and I'm an adventurer, and I want a new experience. I've heard Santa Fe is amazing. You know, the quality of the light and the buildings and the architecture. And they have incredible restaurants. The food is world-class, which is very important to me and always has been. I'm sort of a person that likes a lot of different things and I'm interested in a lot of different things. So, you know, fashion was one of my interests, but it wasn't my predominant interest. It was Mm -hmm. one of my interests. It's something I made my living from, but, you know, I can't say that it was my obsession like many people are obsessed with it. I think it probably helped your designs because you were interested in so much more that you were able to bring, you know, everything you're picking up by interacting with other, you know, fields into that, into your work. It's all sort of instinctive. And then, you know, you're surrounded by people that are amazing thinkers and, you know, everything spins off each other, you know, inspiration, all kinds of ideas are sparked. Mhm. It sounds like you were around some some people some people I've long admired, you know. Um and it must have been incredibly invigorating being around some of those conversations, you know, those evenings. It it was. It was and you know, I'm grateful for the charmed life I've been fortunate enough to lead. Obviously, right now you've been preparing to move and to get your new house ready, but what else have you, you know, what, I guess, kept you busy this last year? How did you make it through sort of the craziness of the pandemic? Well, I live in a very isolated location in the hills uh, in Hollywood, and so I just stayed up here. I live I don't live on a regular street. I live on a walk street, which is actually a sidewalk in the hills. You know, I 
was able to read and watch a lot of fine movies. My life was smaller already, so, you know, it wasn't such a big transition. No one was able to go out, so, you know, I had to roll with it. And then, you know, preparing for this move is, you know, taxing and particularly because of the isolated location. You know, they can't just roll up in a moving van on a street. So, you know, it's it's much, much, much more demanding. Oh, well, yeah. I'm very excited to be living on a real street in Santa Fe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, isolation sounds wonderful until you have to get, like, things in and Move. out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is dominating everything I'm doing now. I have a time schedule has to be met. Like the time schedules you have to meet, you know, you were always on a time schedule in fashion. Everything had to be out at a certain time. Mm -hmm. They had, you know, the salespeople, you know, were expecting it. They had appointments made and, uh, and everything had to be a hit. <laughs> you had a lot, a lot of, a lot of, you know, demands put on you. It was a demanding career, you know, making constant hits, which it was demanding. And, and oftentimes, the things that I liked least were the biggest hits. Did you feel a lot of My pressure? Personal, um, well, you know, the pressure was always there. You know, I'm a perfectionist, and I. Uh, respond well to pressure. When I was an adolescent and into my early teens, I was a swimmer and I swam the brand new at that time long distance event, the uh, you know mile swim, the the 1500 meter. And so you know I had that tenacity of a long distance swimmer and a perfectionist, but. You know, it was always disappointing when the things you liked the best were not the best sellers and mm-hmm. the things that, you know, you didn't care about so much, you know, were immensely successful. <laughs> I have a couple of the wrap dresses for Malibu Media. I love them. It seems like you made them in a lot of fabrics. Were they something? Yeah, well, you know, they were hugely successful. Different <laughs> sleeves and different this and different lengths and different colors and different prints and solids and all kinds of things, backless, you know, you know, frontless, I mean, I mean, all different ways. So whenever you have a hit, you know, you do the maximum with it and you could go years, you know, they could do years with the variations. You know, whenever a designer who's successful leaves a business, they always have like a backlog of, you know, of things that can go forward for, you know, maybe, you know, a year or two years sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. to build on. But, yeah, whenever whenever there's something that's a hit, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's like anything else. You make a hit record, you know, you make one something like it, you know. But it's, it's more so because, you know, the little variations are just that. But the other... 70, 80, 90, 100 pieces have to do well, too. Only a small amount can be failures. Mm-hmm. And they're taken off, you know. They'll never be produced. This is, we're speaking of a whole other era. You know, you want the most out there selling well. 
Yeah. To have something taken off collection is not good. <laughs> yeah, Robinson say, for example, they did a full page ad, I remember in the LA Times of like uh, a, a, a solid, like it was like a solid navy max, maxi hooded dress. Mm-hmm. But they were Robinson's, which was, you know, uh, a high-end department store in Los Angeles, and I don't know what they were in other cities. You know, they had several stores in the large city of Los Angeles. But I know, you know, for that dress, when I did it without the hood was and did it with different little other necklines or something, the same body, it was much more successful than the hooded one. But, you know, but they did a, they they were bold, and they did a full-page ad with it for the store. But, you know, I I never really liked to be mainstream. And, you know, the dresses that were not hooded were also, I liked them equally as well. In fact, I remember a very good photograph right now of, you know, that same body, you know, very simple body, you know, that I liked equally as well, you know, that had no hood. You know, I liked the detailing, the tiny little bit of detail I gave it, and, you know. I liked most everything I did, whether they were the massive sellers, you know, that ran for two years, or things that uh, were not as well received. And you also, I found some articles mentioning doing jewelry in the 90s. Yeah, I did some very fun jewelry. In fact, women's wear the first when it first came out, they ran. It was with my friend John Boscovich, an artist, and it was Boscovich Tariba. It was like a crucifix and all of the or, or rosary necklace. I don't know. It was a crucifix and rosary necklace. It all of the pill, all of the like Prozac and all of the antidepressants were beads on the necklace and women's wear ran it as a cover you know i worked in silver and gold and you know they were done with casts and with jewelers putting them together so again i didn't have to really you know touch them you know Mm -hmm. myself that was purely conceptual design with somebody fabricating them it's not unusual And I, you know, I collected jewelry, too. I don't have any now because I, you know, was robbed twice and luckily nothing happened. They didn't get my jewelry, but I didn't like the concept. Um, But I loved all the very, very big, you know, like 40s pieces and Art Deco jewelry. Mm. I have like a whole list of jewelers I love. Bigger than the list of designers I love. Do you collect like antique furniture, like older furniture, or? Well, you know, I started collecting in the early '70s, and I yeah. still have some things that I'm taking with me to Santa Fe. You know, that mm-hmm. are, you know, I bought when I was like, you know, 21 years old or something. They're still as good as they ever were, and you know, you add and you know, you change some things, and you know, the place in Santa Fe will have new lighting brought in 
you know, you change some things around and keep, you know, the classic things and, you know, it becomes a fresh new look. I like very minimalist now, like mm-hmm. almost no furniture. It's just, you know, the way you live now, You, I don't want a lot of things. I've had a lot of things and I don't want a lot of things now. I'm in a more minimalist mode, and I don't think that's going to change. And I like the more spare spaces, you know, just functional, just what you need to function with. Thank you so much for everything. This has been wonderful. I'll be in touch. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Terry Tariva. Please head to sizewhispers.com to read a short article, watch some clips, and to see a slideshow for designs. See you next week. Thank you.